Are you looking to improve your photography or start making documentaries for your business or for fun? Castlemaine Media School offers affordable online short courses in filmmaking and photographic composition. Learn principles from industry professionals so you can develop and apply skills using your own camera. To find out more, visit castlemainemediaschool.com. Proud Main FM sponsor. The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Bookroom. Listen to us every Friday from 1pm on 94.9 Main FM, mainfm.net, and on demand. Just follow the links on our website. The Quiet Carriage. All aboard. A care provider with over 30 years' experience, locally owned and family operated. Central Region Independent Support Services offer support for people living with a disability or anyone self-funded within Mount Alexander Shire. Social, personal and clinical care, home maintenance, cleaning and travel and transport. Visit their website at chris.com.au. Central Region Independent Support Services, Main FM sponsor. Down to Earth, 7pm Tuesday on Community Radio 94.9 Main FM. Bad news and good news on the environment and social justice. We're all in this together. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and District, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the State Government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stone Man's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage from Jajawarung Country. And broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And today, my guest is Michael Mohammed Ahmed, who is promoting his latest novel, which is The Other Half of You, out now via Hachette. Let's hear a little bit about the novel. Barney Adam has known all his life what was expected of him, to marry the right kind of girl, to make the house of Adam proud. But Barney wanted more than this. He wanted to make his own choices. Being the first in his Australian Muslim family to go to university, he could see a different way. Years later, Barney will write his story to his son, Khalil, telling him of the choices that were made on Barney's behalf and those that he made for himself, of the hurt he caused and the heartache he carries, of the mistakes he made and the lessons he learned. In this moving and timely novel, Michael Mohammed Ahmed balances the complexities of modern love with the demands of family, tradition and faith. The Other Half of You is the powerful, insightful and unforgettable new novel from the Miles Franklin shortlisted author of The Lebs. And let's hear a bit about the author now. Michael Mohammed Ahmed is the founding director of the Sweatshop Literacy Movement, and editor of the critically acclaimed anthology After Australia. Mohammed's debut novel, The Tribe, won the 2015 Sydney Morning Herald's Best Young Novelist of the Year Award. His second novel, The Lebs, was the 2019 New South Wales Premier's Multicultural Literary Award winner and was shortlisted for the 2019 Miles Franklin Literary Award. 
Mohammed received his Doctorate of Creative Arts from Western Sydney University in 2017. And here he is on the line from Sydney. Michael Mohammed Ahmed, it's so great to have you today on The Quiet Carriage to speak about your latest novel, The Other Half of You. Thank you for having me and also Salamu Alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. Thank you so much. Peace be upon you too. Is it okay to say that back? Absolutely. And I'm really flattered and honored that you would uh, pass your peace and blessings on to me. Thank you. I'll be honest with you here. I am a bit of a bit of a fanboy for your stuff. I absolutely loved the libs and I really enjoyed this book so much. I, I finished it last night and uh, my wife was next to me and I was saying, you should get this on your book club. You would really enjoy this because it you're one of my favorite writers in Australia because yeah, I, I really respect your your, the, your bravery, the way you write, and the way you managed to marry the incredibly funny with the deeping, uh, very deeply sad as well. I, I think that's a real gift. And I know from a writer's perspective, it, it's really not easy to do. And I was so happy as well in the book to follow Barney Adams' story again. That's your protagonist. It was like meeting up with an old friend. Uh, I just wanted to ask, how much of you is in Barney, Adam, and, and, and vice versa? Thank you so much for those very kind words. Um, that's a big question, so I'll try oh, Sorry, and, it was um, a very long question. <laughs> I, I very much appreciate long and sophisticated uh, questions, and I try to give uh, long and sophisticated answers, so I'll try to break it down. Okay. Um, and I'll, 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 I'll go through the components um, of the points you made before I answer the question. Mm -hmm. So um, what I would say is that the uh, history of um, representations of Arab and Muslim men in Australia, even if we just talked about the recent history, mm -hmm. has not been particularly positive. Mm -hmm. uh, we're very fast approaching the 20-year anniversary of the September 11 attacks. And... Uh, over the last 20 years, the, the media narrative around people like me has been that we are drug dealers, that we are sexual predators, uh, rapists, that we are gangsters, that we participate in drive-by shootings. And then, of course, the kind of global narrative, which ties into the way Arabs and Muslims in Australia are constructed, which is that we're also all terrorist suspects. Mm -hmm. And so um, there has been a real desire on my part and other prominent Arab and Muslim writers in Australia to create a counter-narrative to this. But your point on um, the bravery, I think the reason why my work has maybe been seen as brave is because I don't feel compelled to tell a positive story in order to counteract a negative story. My, my business as a professional creative writer with a doctorate in creative writing mm -hmm. is to tell a complex and sophisticated story. And that sometimes means fessing up to and even revealing the toxic behavior that exists in my community, which can be dangerous uh, because obviously you don't want that to fall into the wrong hands. Mm. But uh, in, in total, what I feel like people get is a humanizing portrait of real people that are complex and sophisticated. And now to answer your question, um, Banny Adam is the autobiographical version of myself that that has been the main figure in all of these stories. Mm -hmm. Now, in Arabic, the, the name Bani Adam isn't actually a name you give to children or you give to people. It's actually a term. A Bani Adam in Arabic means the child of Adam, or it's a more, or more figuratively, it's out the way we refer to humankind. And I gave um, my protagonist, my autobiographical alter ego, this name, because I think even though... He has moments of beauty. You see the darker sides of his personality and of his community. And I wanted to explicitly tell a story about a human being. Um, and and in in total, I feel like you get a you get the kind of full experience of what it means to really know the Arab and Muslim identity, mm -hmm. uh, specifically from places like Western Sydney. Now, the last point I'll make, um, how much of Bani Adam is me? Mm. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I work in a genre called autobiographical fiction. And I very much was influenced by, um, by this particular genre from a very famous writer that comes from your part of the world, actually, mm -hmm. James Joyce. Yes. And, uh, you know, the, Joyce was one of the, the world's greatest 
uh, autofic writers mm-hmm. marrying the uh, the fictional world with the kind of autobiographical world and creating these works of art. And so I, what I would say is that Banny is loosely based on me. He's very much the embodiment of who I am. But at the same time, I, as a creative writer, prioritize telling a, a complex and compelling story, which often means that I go into very fictional places. Mm. And I don't feel, I don't, I never feel inhibited by reality. Mm. So did you marry a Westerner? Is this, is this your, your family that you're writing about here? Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. The, the the big plot points in all three of my novels, the the tribe, and then the lebs, and mm-hmm. then the other half of you, which are all, by the way, standalone novels, but that are interconnected. So, um, Banny Adam is a little boy in the tribe. In the lebs, he's a teenage boy, and in uh, the other half of you, he's a grown man. You can read them individually, but 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 in total, what I've been creating is a body of work that shows the kind of full life of a of an Arab and Muslim. Uh, human being, you know, living in the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, now, in terms of that question, did I marry a Westerner? Uh, just for our audience to contextualize that question, I think you, you, you mean because specifically in the other half of you, mm-hmm. the big story is about Bani kind of breaking with tradition, breaking the hearts of many members of his tribe, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, getting together with uh, with a white girl. And I, I should just point out that the original working title for the book was actually to marry a white girl. <laughs> yeah, right. And you you might have noticed that there's all these little references to To Kill a Mockingbird uh, that are peppered through the book. And that's because I was very much interweaving the idea of, um, you know, uh, race relations and uh, racial tension between brown and, and white mm-hmm. uh, in in the original in the original draft. Um now, in terms of my personal life, uh, yes, I I did. I I, I married a white girl. Hmm. I broke my family's heart. But you know what's the most amazing thing? And this kind of I, I'd like to think this comes through in the in the book is the way grandchildren can tend to make everything better. You know, especially for um, for old crazy wogs. And so <laughs> it's been it's been a really interesting journey the last fifteen years with me and and the the person that. Um, the character Ollie is based on in the book. Her, her real name is Jane, um, and and our son, our mixed race, Arab Australian Muslim and Anglo Australian uh, son Khalil. Wow, this book broke my heart in a lot of ways. Be being an artist, being a writer like you are. Did you always feel like an outsider within your community? Yeah, um, thank you for that question. So I, I think when you read the book, you see Banny is constantly uh, feeling torn between tradition mm-hmm. and um, and what it means to be a you know a, an Australian, literally an Australian, mm-hmm. living in um, living in the modern era. And um, I, I think that there is a way in which we can understand this for 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 me and for my autobiographical character mm-hmm. that it's there's trying to negotiate that fine line between honoring tradition without being a slave to it. Mm. And um, what I think is the primary factor throughout the novel, uh, anyone who reads this uh, book will know this. Um, and I, I'll try my best not to spoil too much because I think there are some really nice surprises that are not worth knowing going into the book. Yes. But but what is one of the main aspects of the book is that Bani is the first in his entire Arab Muslim family to go to university. And when I say entire, I don't just mean his immediate family. I mean, you know, out of his his 22 aunts and uncles all of his grandparents and and his cousins. And of course, you, a lot of people will know this who are listening. Uh, when we say cousins and we're re- referring to lebs, we mean hundreds of cousins. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and so, you know, there's this very significant moment, not just for Benny, but for his entire tribe, insofar as he's the first to finish high school and go to university. That was my experience as well. That's the reality that I was the first in my family to go to university. And then by the time a lot of my younger cousins were also starting to go to university, I was completing a doctorate. So the first in my family to complete postgraduate studies. 
And so, of course, I always felt like an outsider in that way. And it's not just the feeling of knowing that you're doing something that's kind of new and original and that's new territory for your community. It's also because I was regularly coming home with what my my tribe and my family were interpreting as wacky ideas. And there was this real fear that I was going to be corrupting the family with my views on gender, on on race, on class, and of course, on sexuality. Um, and so that's the that's a huge factor in the book, how Banny's education informs so many of his decisions. And, and what I would say is that I think one of the the flavors of the book is not so much that Banny tells you um, how he uses his education, but how you kind of constantly see him drawing literary references from the canon. You can see him actively thinking through his reality um, by using the, the education that he's obtained in order to make the decisions that he makes. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stowman's Bookroom. And now we'll return to my interview with Michael Mohammed Ahmed. And when you speak of tribe, you're, for people that haven't read the book, you're specifically speaking of Alawite. Is that, have I said that right? That, which is yes, a type of Muslim, a type of Islam, a branch of Islam. Yeah, that'd be right. Yeah. So, 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 when I was younger, I was very angry about being an Alawite. Um, I resented so many of the values and the ideas that came with my tribe. I, I use the term tribe uh, as a kind of uh, polemical provocation. I mean, I, I, you know, I kind of say they they participate in quite tribal and cult like behavior. But this is the thing. That kind of anger that I felt growing up, as I've gotten older, I've, I've kind of become a little bit more sympathetic. So um, when you describe the Alawite community, what, what the audience needs to understand is that um, Alawites are a branch of Shiism. And so if you're an Alawite living in Australia, that means you're a Muslim Shiite mm-hmm. Alawite. That's, the, that's the, the steps you take to, to getting to that particular minority, which mm-hmm. means that you're a minority within a minority within a minority living in Australia. And so it, it makes sense that the community can become quite tribal, closed off, very suspicious of, out, of, of outsiders. That's the, the term we use, and that's the term I use in the book to talk about uh, Bani's love interests who are not members of the tribe. And and I kind of get it now, you know, like it it was their way of trying to survive and protect themselves. And so I I don't identify as an Alawite. I identify as a Muslim. Um, I I think that so many Muslims throughout the world, uh, millions of Muslims have slaughtered each other, Sunnis and Shiites and Alawites, over these categories and these labels that were introduced after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. They have nothing to do with what with the religion Muhammad created. And so as a very strong political statement, I, I, I stopped identifying with any of these sects a long time ago, but I do explore the experience of being an Alawite and the, uh, the, the, um, the struggle of being a, a, a Lebanese Muslim Alawite growing up in Australia throughout the book, because uh, of course in the Lebs and uh, the other half of you, Benny's a young man. He's a teenager transitioning into the early stages of his adulthood. Mm-hmm. Has there been any blowback from your community? And that, that's why I was really talking about bravery before, because you don't always speak of the Alawites in a great light. Yeah, that's a fair question. I mean, the first point I'll make is that there is an interesting dichotomy between those who are literate and those who are illiterate. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you see, the thing is that generally members of our community who could read my work and understand it and appreciate it have far more progressive values and ideas anyway. And the ones who would probably be a little bit hostile towards me uh, generally are illiterate. They don't have an education. And this is not, a, uh, uh, I don't say this as a criticism towards my community or towards Muslims in general. Um, what I think is often overlooked when, when minorities are being demonized is the other factors. We usually try to attribute problems to things like race, you know, so when it comes to, questions like the you know the debate about same-sex marriage in australia there was a lot of islamophobic rhetoric coming out um coming out against us that the that you know muslims are voting in in droves against this uh what i consider to be basic human right but actually if you look at the other factors um it, you find that it's very similar to, uh the, the 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 numbers show that 
uh, we behave quite similarly to other communities. If you're edu- if you're university educated, you're more likely to vote yes on something like same-sex marriage, even if you're a practicing uh, Muslim, even you're even if you're a practicing Alawite. And so um, I think uh, there was a there's a kind of irony that the the people that would generally be threatening towards me, um, and that would be pretty upset about the portrait that I paint, uh, are not likely to read the book. Whereas the people that are are likely to read my work are, are the ones who understand the complexity of some of the issues that I'm trying to explore and have gone through similar journeys to me. That's the first point. The second point I want to make, which is a far more important point, is, and I, and I don't think this is going to surprise you, but actually the, the main community who have been very upset with me since I began working are members of the dominant white culture because I think um, whilst the the specificities of my work you know the little details are about nitpicking at my community's failings and my community's problems always the overarching conversations that i've been trying to have the conversations in the backdrop are about how living in a white settler colonial context mm-hmm. marginalizes and oppresses arab muslim and more broadly uh poc people of color communities mm-hmm. and and so i've, I've you know i've re- i regularly receive uh, threatening emails, threatening messages uh, through social media, um, and and in some cases death threats about the work I've been producing, which tries to have a sophisticated uh, lens on um, on the, the the fantasy of white supremacy that tends to govern a lot of Australia's um, a lot of Australia's politics. Wow! So the backlash has been bigger from the Western community in Australia than your own. Um. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm realizing that I'm speaking to somebody who uh, um, is not um, like has a kind of uh, has his own outsider sense, uh, uh, like experience of of living in Australia. Am I? Mm-hmm. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, yes. I mean, I was from Scotland originally, uh, but yeah, my my idea of Australia would be would be very different to yours. Yeah, yeah. It would be different, but in some ways, I think actually, when we when I spend time working with and talking to Irish communities and Scottish communities, mm-hmm. there are so many similarities, uh, historical similarities between those uh, struggles, which is why, of course, we see people from your part of the world being very sympathetic to the Palestinian struggle, for example. Yes. Um, yep. And and so um, what I would say is that uh, it's interesting talking to you uh, from the both of us coming from that uh, outsider perspective um, and that it's actually surprising because it sounds like you're almost surprised that um <laughs> that the main the main community that have been adversarial towards me have been members of the white uh the dominant white culture what i would say is that in 2019 an australian born white supremacist entered into a mosque in christ two mosques mm-hmm. in christchurch and slaughtered 51 muslims peacefully conducting their friday prayers um in 2005 5,000 white Australians marched on a beach in Cronulla, mm-hmm. chanting no lebs and other derogatory things and physically assaulting anybody that looked like me, anybody that was of Middle Eastern appearance. And so, you know, white Australia has a very shameful history, very recently shameful history of demonizing and dehumanizing Arab and Muslim communities. And I don't think that that's something that you can necessarily unlearn. And yeah. even members of the white culture who uh, would be pretty progressive. There's still a lot of biases and prejudices. And, you know, if I was going to be kind, I'd say ignorances about being Arab and Muslim in Australia that tend to play out in all kinds of toxic ways. And But this is the nice part. This is the part where I reach out to my audience. The purpose of me being a writer and the purpose of the work that I've been doing for 20 years has literally been an attempt to offer some narratives that show a not necessarily positive, but complex and sophisticated portrait of who we are, because I really want everyone in Australia, including members of the dominant white culture, to really know us. Mm, mm. That's what I find in your books. It's it's an education more than anything. Like I'm, I'm getting a, a chance to step into a side of the world that we live side by side with, but I really have not much understanding of. And it, it's so sad that we're talking about white Australia that they, they can't, be open-minded enough to to embrace that. that i guess that's why i'm not so much shocked i'm more sort of you know disappointed disgusted fair, I guess. fair enough what i would say is that yeah. when we talk about whiteness in australia um i i use the definition by professor gus Hajj, who's got a fantastic book called white nation um which is 20 years old but still very relevant and he mm-hmm. defines it as 
the fantasy position of cultural dominance born out of the history of European expansion. And I think it is really important for our wonderful listeners um, to take to, to take into consideration that I'm very rarely talking about personal um, mm. issues or, or and I'm very rarely uh, personally attacking uh, any individual from the white community. Uh, what I am talking about are the systemic and structural problems mm-hmm. that result in xenophobia and racism. And so, you know, what I would say is that in both in terms of the Christchurch massacre and in terms of the Cronulla riots, um, there were very, you know, there were very explicit uh, political rhetoric and media rhetoric uh, from members of the, yeah. of the white community that, ver- that very much contextualized and framed those incidents that gave rise to those incidents. Um, the immigration minister, Peter Dutton, in 2016, described me, described second-generation Lebanese-Australian Muslims as the mistakes of the Fraser government. And, and what he was referring to was my parents' generation mm. in the 1970s uh, from Lebanon being welcomed into Australia. He described that as a mistake. And we've seen this kind of rhetoric, this kind of dehumanizing and uh, vilifying narrative around us at the, at the highest level, yeah. at the level of, the, of people in the, in the greatest positions of power. And I don't, I don't spend too much time thinking about the gunman you know, who enters the mosque. Mm-hmm. I think about the language that that gunman experienced for yeah. two decades, which fundamentally drove him to this madness. Yeah. And that's and that's where my work is trying to uh, intervene, not not on that ground level, but really on that higher level. And and that that really starts with what you what you called an education. Yep, I agree. Yeah. The tribe, and in particular, the Lebs, uh, hugely successful book for you. The Lebs got nominated for Miles Franklin. Was that the reason you wrote this third instalment, if you like? Or would you would you have written that regardless? Did you always see it as, as being being a third book? Yeah, that, yeah that's such, such an interesting question. Okay, so I'll break it down. Firstly, I'll quickly talk about the Lebs. So it was successful. So um, as you pointed out, it was a finalist for the Miles Franklin Award. Mm-hmm. It also won the Premier's uh, Multicultural Literary Award in 2019. Wow. Um, uh, Gladys was the one, you know, <laughs> she's giving us a bit of a hard time in Western Sydney right now, but she was the one that, that presented me with that award. And, um, you know, uh, I would say that the, the lens was very successful, but it was also incredibly controversial. It was a very heavily debated book that the... There was no consistent uh, review on the book. You know, there were some reviews that were like, this is disgusting, horrible, embarrassing, insulting. And then there were others that were like, this is a sophisticated uh, uh, work of, a, of an artist, you know. Um, and I, I think I, I, it's because of what I've been telling you, which is that I don't, I, I don't try to give easy answers to the big questions and the big conversations we're having. Uh, about about race and class and gender and sexuality in Australia. I, I, I tend to kind of tell a story that is nuanced enough that it can be very confusing if somebody isn't reading it very closely. Uh, but that being said, um, I, I didn't get any pleasure out of that. I, I'm grateful for the success and, and for the people who supported the book, but I didn't get any pleasure whatsoever from telling a story that was so divisive and that seemed to upset a lot of people, not only uh, members of the dominant white culture, but members of my own community, other people of colour, Indigenous people. It was a complicated experience. And, you know, the last three years since the Lebs came out um, have been incredibly divisive around the world. Um, Mm. We've talked about Christchurch, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has put tremendous pressure on communities all around the world to look at the uh, the, the history of anti-blackness in Australia, it's raised serious conversations about the mistreatment of Indigenous communities uh, in relation to things like deaths in custody. Uh, COVID has given rise to a tremendous amount of anti-Asian violence. So, we, 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 you know, we, we've, it feels like the last couple of years have been incredibly difficult and challenging, especially for minorities. And it, it's never felt like we've been more divided as a species, yeah. at least not in my lifetime. And so this time I wanted to tell a story in contrast to the Lebs, that talks about unity and solidarity uh, and, and coming together, that talks about love, uh, this kind of pure uh, love that transcends faith, transcends culture, transcends race, and, and ultimately provides a, a vision of hope for the future, especially a vision of hope for our children who I think we all agree are, are not necessarily going to inherit an, uh, a positive world. Um, the other point I want to make about um, why I wrote this book and and how I wrote it. Did I always know I was going to write it? I, I'm not too sure because I um, 
I, I think my life had to happen in order for me to decide that I was going to write the book. And I, I'll, I'll tell a really nice, tender little story to uh, contextualize that point I just made. Please. But um, my son <laughs> was born in 2015. Mm -hmm. And that was when I began writing the very first scenes of The Other Half of You. Uh, you, having read the book, will know that there are so many detailed scenes of his birth, mm -hmm. you know, and and him literally coming into this world uh, through the point of view of, of his father, you know, me being in the hospital room while his mother was giving birth to him. Mm -hmm. And I remember literally beginning to write the very, very first scenes of The Other Half of You the night my son was born, his mum was in the hospital bed trying to get, you know, what um, new mums generally get when they've just given birth, which is maybe half an hour or 40 minutes of rest before <laughs> he starts crying for her again for, for some milk. Yeah. And, you know, I, in those moments, in the late hours of the night, I would be up watching her try to get some sleep and he would be in my arms. Literally, he'd be in my right arm while I was trying to rock him. And in my left hand, I would have my iPhone and I would be writing out the scenes that were going to become chapters in the other half of you. And so my life was happening as the book was happening. So I don't know if I ever intended to write this book mm -hmm. because it, it, the book happened at the same time that my life, that the story in the book was unfolding. Wow. Can we expect more books about Barney Adam? Um, yeah, I've been asked this question a couple of times. It's so funny because I was just telling you that my life had to happen <laughs> in order for, um, for, for these three books to happen. So mm -hmm. what I would say is that, um, firstly, I, I would say, let's see where the next uh, five years or 10 years take me. And if there's, a, if there's more to say, if there's more about the experience as I enter into uh, another phase of my life and into another generation of my life i will um I, I guess that's when i'll start answering that question but but for but for now here's what i would say that i, I was really interested in the tribe in exploring the the world of arab and muslim identity through the lens of a child um and then with the lebs i really wanted to look at that lens and i really wanted to look at that experience um through the point of view of a teenager. And I will point out that that was a particularly important um, narrative in this, uh, in these three books, not only because it's the coming of age story and it's a significant moment in every young person's life, but because in this particular case, it's around the exact moment that the 2001 September 11 attacks are taking place. It's at that exact moment when Arab Australian Muslim men are being demonized as sexual predators following the um, the 2000 SCAF gang rapes. Um, you know, it's in that moment when the 2005 Cronulla riots take place. So it's already mm. difficult being a teenager. And then on top of that, you know, you've got all this uh, social and political and media pressure demonizing you and pigeonholing you in an incredibly predatory way. Mm. And so I, I feel like the Lebs was a very important narrative for those two reasons, the coming of age plus the experience of being a, an Arab Muslim. Um, now, with the other half of you, you know, looking at adulthood and specifically looking at fatherhood, you know, that story about about what it means for us to bring the next generation into this world and bringing the next generation of minority into this world, being very aware that my child is going to inherit a world that might be racist towards him and trying through my writing to prepare him, to intellectually arm him, um, I felt like was an, a, an incredibly important story to tell. And this is the ultimate point. It's The book is called The Other Half of You, but I really feel like when you get to the end of this book, you might come to the conclusion that Benny is whole now, mm -hmm. that the halves have all come together. Mm -hmm. And so for the time being, what I would say is I think I'm done because I really think whether you just read this book on its own or whether you read the trilogy, you will come to the conclusion that you've seen the full development you know from childhood to adulthood of this uh of this complex human being mm. and three does have a nice ring to it too do do your books carry overseas like how, how well do they how well do they sell over there particularly say middle east um yeah so that's a good question i it's the first time i've ever been asked that question really? so i have some yeah I, well i mean i guess you know the thing about me as a 
not not necessarily as a writer, but more as a as somebody who's been identified as a public intellectual, you mm-hmm. know, who has been participating in uh, scholar, scholarly and academic discourse around race, class, gender, and sexuality. Um, my work is in that field, and you know, the doctoral research I did for four years has always very, very specifically been Australian. It's always been very much centered on the Arab Australian experience as a unique identity. So, you know, we were talking about the book, The Lebs. I don't use the word Leb as shorthand for Lebanese. Anyone that's read The Lebs will tell you that there are characters who are from Indonesian background who call themselves Lebs. Mm. There are characters from Turkish backgrounds and Afghan backgrounds and Jordanian and Palestinian backgrounds, all who refer to themselves as Lebs. So really what I was talking about is this unique subculture that emerged in Western Sydney that was being referred to as led, particularly in the context of the September 11 attacks. Um, that is a that is very unique and original uh, a part of, of being Australian. So I think the, the first point I have to make is that it's not a surprise that my main body of work has has mostly resonated with and spoken to Australian audiences because it's very much speaking about our culture and speaking about an aspect of our culture that I think is heavily misunderstood yeah now the second point i would make though is about the international community so this is a little bit funny yes i have some fans and some readers from specifically from the arab world Mm -hmm. who read my work and who send me emails and who have been uh, very intrigued by it specifically because in australia people tend to think of uh, the arab community as very arab but actually the arab community in the arab world know that we're quite different to them as mm-hmm. Australians. And so they're, they're interested in the Arab diaspora in Australia and how our experiences here might mirror their experience, but in other ways don't mirror their experiences, how it's a very different reality that is um, new to them. That's the first point. But I will also say this, which might be interesting and surprising to some people. There's actually a translation of the tribe in Mandarin, which exists right. in China right now <laughs> that, you know, you can you can go to bookstores in in you know, different parts of China and, and purchase. And um, I was very fortunate in 2015 to travel um, to Beijing and work with a, a, the British Centre for Literary Translation and to work with a team of Chinese Mandarin speaking and, and writing translators who worked with me to, cha- to, to, to translate the, the tribe into Mandarin. And we learned so many interesting things through that dialogue about not necessarily Australia and China, but about the Arab world and China. And pretty much everybody I met in those couple of weeks of working in Beijing had never met an Arab Australian before. And so I was very kind of <laughs> odd to them because there was something very Aussie about me, they would tell me. But then there was also something that was a little bit off. There was yeah. something a bit different. And I remember one person describing it as, um, you talk like a deer trying to run on water. <laughs> wow, there you go. What you're saying that you might be finished with Barney Adam? What what next for you then? I mean, will you always write about your community? Yes, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, it's a it's a thoughtful question, and I I feel lucky to be asked it because I have a thoughtful answer. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I feel very blessed that I've had these three books, um, the, the the tribe and the lebs, have been award winning and and critic, critical successes and also commercial successes. Um, I, uh, and I feel very blessed that I've had an education that it's, that's enabled me to write uh, many critical essays that have been given big platforms. You know, um, the, the, uh, the mainstream newspapers like the Sydney Morning Herald have published my work. Uh, I've been very fortunate to publish with, uh, you know, uh, organisations like the Sydney Review of Books and Leandrin, the critical work that I wanted to contribute to Australia. Um, I have essays in books like uh, Arab Australian Other, which I think is a fantastic uh, collection uh, edited by Sarah Soleh and Randa Abdul Fattah that might be worth checking out. Okay. Um, and so when people ask me what's next for you, I, I, you know, I, I feel very content and I feel like I've been very blessed to have a platform to share my words and my ideas, both in fiction and nonfiction. And what I will do is I, I'll take the opportunity to talk about the literacy movement that I established in Western Sydney called Sweatshop. Yes, which is a writing writing program devoted to empowering culturally and linguistically diverse uh, writers and indigenous writers through uh, reading, uh, creative writing, and critical thinking. 
And um, what I've really been invested in over the last couple of years and what I'm really invested in now that I have now that I have more time because I've just finished my new novel is supporting the next generation of diverse writers to tell their own stories. And there are so many exciting books that are on there that have just come out that are worth checking out. Uh, I think Amani Haydor's The Mother Wound, for example, mm-hmm. is an incredibly important book. Um, Sarah Osayed's Money People is an incredibly important book that's come out and both of whom are writers that I've had the pleasure of working with and and supporting and mentoring. Um, I also, there are very exciting books that will be coming out in the next few years by writers like Winnie Dunn. That will be one of the first Pacifica books ever written in the country, novels. Right. Um, there, there is a fantastic book that uh, um, one of my closest collaborators and colleagues, Shirley Lee, who's a Vietnamese Australian writer, is working on, and that'll be published by Firm Press in two years. Um, there's uh, uh, Sarah Sola, who's an award-winning poet that's working on her debut novel. And then there's a whole bunch of anthologies. And so what yeah. I'm trying to say is that the next couple of years, I'm really excited about collaborating with some of my peers and some of my students and mentees and helping them get their stories out into the world. Fabulous. Michael, Mohammed, Ahmed, we unfortunately have to leave it there. I'm so happy we got to get you on, though, because you've been on my wish list for quite some time to get you on the show. So thank you for that. And I, I honestly do believe your work is filling a serious void in Australian literature. So, so thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on, Paul. It's an absolute pleasure. I also always love to finish the way I started by saying assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. And I don't only just say that to you, I say that to all of our wonderful listeners and I do wish them all peace, joy, and happiness, especially during this very difficult time. I do think it's a very good opportunity uh, during this hard time to to do some reading. Indeed, yeah. If there's something good that's going to come out of this, it means we get to read lots. Could you leave us with three songs? Absolutely. So um, the three songs that I would recommend that give me inspiration are firstly... Talking About Revolution by Tracy Chapman. Mm-hmm. Secondly, Changes by Tupac. And thirdly, Drops of Jupiter by Train. Michael, Mohammed, Ahmed, peace be upon you. And thank you so much for joining us on The, the Quiet Carriage. Don't you know... Talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know Talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a don't you know Talking about a revolution Sounds Just Poor people gonna rise up and Get their share Poor people gonna rise up And take what's there Don't you know you better run, run, run
Looks like summer and walks like rain Reminds me that there's a time to change Since the return of a stay on the moon She listens like spring and she talks like June You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. And the tracks we heard there from the top was Tracy Chapman with Talking About Revolution, Tupac with Changes and Train with Drops of Jupiter. And that was the, those were the song selections today by my guest, Michael Mohammed Ahmed who was talking to me on the line about his latest novel, The Other Half of You, which is out now via Hachette. And that is unfortunately all we have time for today. My name has been Paul J. Laverty. You can find me across all the socials under that name. I'm going to leave you now with the track A Horse With No Name by America. Until next time, keep reading. I was looking at all the 
Moving can be stressful, but at Stressless Moves, we move your belongings like they're our own and can professionally pack and unpack your cartons. Stressless Moves offers door-to-door service locally or interstate. We do a weekly run to Melbourne with single items or a whole truckload. Leave the stress of moving to us. Call Jessica or Donna on 0427 046 001 for an obligation-free quote on your next move. Stresslessmoves.com.au, a proud sponsor of Main FM. The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Book Room. Listen to us every Friday from 1pm on 94.9 Main FM, mainfm.net, and on demand. Just follow the links on our website. The Quiet Carriage, all aboard. The tap room is home to Shed Shaker Brewing and is open six days a week at the mill in Castlemaine. Featuring craft beer brewed on site, local ciders and a brand new expanded menu serving food all day. With live music on Friday nights and Sunday arvos, good times are guaranteed. 
Visit the website or follow The Tap Room on socials for all the latest updates and special events. The Tap Room is a lively sponsor of Main FM. Are you looking to improve your photography or start making documentaries for your business or for fun? Castlemaine Media School offers affordable online short courses in filmmaking and photographic composition. Learn principles from industry professionals so you can develop and apply skills using your own camera. To find out more, visit castlemainemediaschool.com. Proud Main FM sponsor. Down to Earth, 7pm Tuesday on Community Radio 94.9 Main FM. Bad news and good news on the environment and social justice. We're all in this together. Nothing.